Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Few doctrinal and political issues are more controversial in Pakistan today than that of blasphemy. In her excellent and engaging new book, Sharia and the State in Pakistan, Blasphemy Politics, Farhat Haq presents the history and present of blasphemy laws, debates and politics in Pakistan in a manner that carefully weaves the historical backdrop of blasphemy politics with important discursive moments and contributions involving a range of different actors, state and non-state. Equally conversant with Islamic studies, South Asian studies and political science, this book will speak to and interest multiple audiences. While familiarizing readers in eminently accessible prose with the legal, political and theological complexities invested in the question of blasphemy in Pakistan and beyond. Throughout the book, Huck convincingly shows and argues that blasphemy politics in Pakistan escapes any neat narratives or conceptual framings, and one must attend to its contingencies in order to develop a more nuanced understanding of its thorniest implications and consequences. This book is a must-read for anyone interested in the hugely critical and controversial topic of blasphemy in Islam and in Pakistan. Here now is my conversation with Professor Farhat Haq. Uh, hello, Farhat. How are you doing? Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, thank you very much, Shirley. I'm doing fine. Farhat, thank you for this book, uh, which is a splendid book, and it really speaks to multiple audiences in Islamic studies, South Asian Islam, the study of Islam in Pakistan, and about a very critical and timely uh, topic. Uh, that of blasphemy in uh, Pakistan. I was wondering, we have a tradition on uh, uh, the New Books Network, Farad, that our first question is always biographical. So I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners how you became a scholar of Islam, uh, of Pakistan and South Asia, and then uh, what got you to write this particular book? Yes. Uh, so I uh, am a hyphenated American. I am a Pakistani American. I came to the United States when I was 18 years old. And uh, then I completed my undergraduate and graduate studies here. And so as I was looking for a dissertation topic, this is in the mid 80s, uh, political Islam was emerging as an important kind of uh, issue for political scientists. So I would say that most of the political scientists didn't know what to do, uh, how to study this topic, or or just religion in general had not been something that political scientists had been that concerned about. Because as you well know, uh, many of the social scientists had assumed that with modernity, religion will become uh, less relevant. So in any event, um, I went looking for a topic and I uh, landed with this idea of writing uh, about the Jamaat Islami in Pakistan as this reformist movement who had very um, powerful ideas about how to organize a modern Islamic state. Uh, so I wrote that dissertation and then, of course, uh, went searching for jobs and ended up uh, with a job offer at uh, Manbad College, a small liberal arts college in Illinois, uh, with lots of uh, teaching opportunities uh, and, I mean, you know, uh, teaching lots of different courses. So in any event, uh, the first uh, couple of years uh, of full-time teaching didn't allow me to get back to my dissertation. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, Professor Wali Nasser came up with a very good book on the Jamaat Islami. And so then I felt like really at this point, I don't have the energy to do anything with my dissertation. I went on and looked at other aspects of uh, political Islam. So I did some uh, research on gender and um, Islam and wrote an article about that, uh, looked at human rights discourse in Islam, etc. So published several articles, but uh, I wanted to eventually sort of uh, bring to bear my last 30 years engagement with political Islam uh, to uh, write this book uh, and and sort of finally felt at a, at a place with my uh, sabbatical uh few years ago that I could do that. So I took my time. It took about three years to really write this book. Uh, but I, you know, it just took that long to get to it. So one of the major uh, uh, arguments or purposes of this book, as you put it throughout, and especially in the introduction, is that you're really trying to complicate 
conventional, commonplace, popular understandings of blasphemy in Pakistan. I was wondering, A, could you please speak a bit about how you complicate blasphemy in Pakistan? And then uh, if you could tie to that the central argument uh, that you try to pursue uh, in this project. If you could speak a bit about that. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so I think my sort of key idea was that I see uh, uh, Pakistan as a really an, what I would call an exceptionally revealing case when it comes to looking at many of the conundrums that modern Muslim nation states face. Uh, and so I see Pakistan as a very productive uh, case study. And then along with that, blasphemy to me became this window through which we could understand many of these uh, complexities and conundrums, because in some ways, blasphemy really is such a, uh, the way it's been operating in Pakistan for the last 15, 20 years, this, you know, all these kind of cases around uh, blasphemy statues. Uh, For the lack of a better word, I would say it's almost ridiculous. And by that, what I mean is it's sort of this extreme situation where almost everyone is aware that uh, these laws are problematic, both in terms of their uh, kind of uh, from 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 Islamic perspective, from secular perspective, uh, from the perspective of uh, delivering justice to people. But despite all of that, uh, it, it's been very very difficult for the Pakistani government. Uh, and four different governments have tried to reform these statutes, but they have not been able to. So for me, this question was why? Why is it that it's so difficult to to uh, for Pakistani governments to to do something that seemed otherwise uh, sort of, uh, um, uh, or let's just say, why was it so difficult for them to um, reform this? And so what I ca- uh, say then is that this the ex- extremist kind of rhetoric of, of uh, blasphemy then helps us further, it sort of shines light on some of the paradoxes uh, that I say that that uh, Muslim politics is experiences uh, in modernity. Uh, so that's why I use these two, uh, Pakistan and then blasphemy in Pakistan as, uh, as sort of uh, uh, windows into this. And so first, let me just say that, you know, uh, the uh, the popular understanding of blasphemy, blasphemy laws in Pakistan and the, the problems they create is pretty simple uh, in that uh, for most of the secular uh, uh, West and and even secular Pakistanis, uh, blasphemy laws are sort of an indication of intolerance of Islam, how Islam has really not gone through a reformation process and therefore uh, what we get is these uh, you know uh, uh, draconian laws uh, that are taking away people's uh, rights. Uh, on the other hand the, uh, the other extreme is simply those who support these uh, laws sort of saying that these are God's laws uh, the, 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 that uh, as such they must not be uh, reformed or changed. So these two very uh, kind of uh, set uh, and very predictable uh, uh, ways of arguing about b- blasphemy. But when you actually uh, sort of dig deeper, what you uh, w- the first thing that one must establish <laughs> is that uh, the contemporary blasphemy laws are neither purely Islamic nor purely modern secular. Uh, that it's the entanglement of these two different traditions, the call it Sharia, if you're Islamic jurisprudence, and then the more modern uh, kind of British-influenced uh, uh, English laws, etc. It's this uh, very uh, kind of a uh, uh, complex entangling relationship between these two that really is what we have to come to terms with. Um, so uh, I'm sorry, I'm going on, but let me just finish my, so what's my uh, key argument? My key argument is that if you look uh, at uh, the uh, all the problems that the blasphemy laws have created in Pakistan, it illuminates uh, uh, some conundrums that uh, Muslims are facing in terms of accommodating Islam in public life. So the first such conundrum is that uh, for the modern Muslim nation states, uh, it has this sort of a paradoxical role. Uh, on the one hand, it, it has been now entrusted as becoming the agent uh, which delivers Sharia uh, or delivers Islamic uh, jurisprudence, Islamic laws. But at the same time, I would say, dare, dare to say, in almost all of the Muslim countries, but particularly 
particularly in Pakistan, you see that Muslim states are uh, not to be trusted. They're, they're subject to suspicion and anxiety of the Muslim public uh, regarding the true motivation and intentions of the governing elite. So that's one uh, kind of paradox. Um, the second thing that is very interesting to me is that, uh, you know, a lot of time you see the West sort of accusing uh, Muslim world uh, in terms of where is your um, uh, reformation, this idea that somehow Islam is sort of stuck in kind of some kind of a pre-modern rut and there has not been changes in uh, uh, Muslim thoughts, Muslim practices, etc., which any any of us who have uh, any knowledge of uh, the Muslim world knows that it's completely absurd. If anything, uh, I think the Muslim world has been in tremendous turmoil, and again, I'll talk particularly of Pakistan and South Asia, when it comes to discussion and debates about what is the role of their, their faith in uh, contemporary life. So what we see is this cacophony of voices in the public sphere who claim to be speaking for Islam. But at the same time, uh, Muslim, uh, the Muslim world faces this institutional deficit when it, create, uh, it comes to uh, sort of creating authoritative expression of what is and is not uh, you know, uh, uh, true to to Islam or 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 to uh, uh, what what is the proper way of adjudicating these uh, uh, sort of conflicts, um, and so that then uh, leads us to to uh, consequences where, on the one hand, the blasphemy law. Many of the the Muslim scholars, ulama, would also tell you that that uh, that the, the some aspects of the blasphemy law might be problematic, but there is no really strong institutional mechanism that could be used to sort of adjudicate uh, finally this this uh, problem or this conflict. Um, so the third thing that I was trying to do in this book is to sort of then think through how is it that we're going to be able to uh, sort of create mechanisms to uh, address some of this um, authority deficit, as I'm calling it. And it seemed to me that really um, the only way towards creating uh, uh, some sort of a consensus about really uh, are there blasphemy uh, statues in Pakistan? What kind of, uh, what should be the shape of those statues, et cetera, the reform, the discussion around it, uh, that it comes through uh, uh, groups that have some legitimacy in um, the political process. Or to put it very simply, uh, I think it is the democratic process that can eventually uh, lead us to sort of uh, better ways of uh, adjudicating these conflicts. So that's the third thing I was trying to do. And, and part of what I note then in my book is that people or groups that have made the most hay out of uh, uh, the use of uh, um, from the statues to enhance their political influence tend to be more marginal groups and that parties that have more of a chance to win uh, uh, in elections tend to be more moderate in their behavior. So that was the third thing that I was trying to get at. Now, in one of the early chapters of the book, uh, Farhat, you talk about these two very interesting uh, examples, one from uh, uh, the 20th century, early 20th century, and then one more recently and you uh, mentioned these examples as what you call the beginning and then the sort of contemporary moment of blasphemy politics in Pakistan. These were examples of uh, Ilmuddin uh, in the 20th century, then Mumtaz Qadri more recently. Could you tell us a bit about these two figures, their narratives, and how they represent the beginning and contemporary point of blasphemy politics in uh, Pakistan? Yes. Uh, so um, one of the kind of... Uh, mm, way of telling the story of blasphemy that I've pursued in this uh, book is by uh, looking at very particular uh, figures or events and trying to tell a larger story that connects with some of the concepts that are sort of, uh, again, the conundrums that, that uh, you know, uh, are shaping uh, Muslim politics. So, uh, 
in this instance, uh, in this chapter, it was what the most uh, uh, challenging chapter for me to write. What I was trying to do was sort of almost like take this 80 years of Ilmuddin first, who was a 19-year-old who was executed for murdering a uh, publisher who had published a pamphlet uh, that Muslims saw as uh, uh, insulting the Prophet, and that happened in 1929. And then uh, Mumtaz Qadri, who in 2016 was executed by the st- by the state because he had uh, assassinated uh, the governor of Punjab. So anyway, taking between this 1929 to 2016 and sort of uh, trying to illustrate uh, some of the sort of ironies of what had been happening during this these these uh, times these eighty years. So just to start with the 1929 or Ilmuddin story. So for me, um, that sort of in terms of the larger concepts that I was trying to illustrate, the first such concept might be what we might call judicialization of religious differences. So the idea that you take now you uh, you you bring to law or legal uh, sort of adjudication uh, the, uh, as, a, as a instrument for, for achieving your kind of uh, sectarian or religious uh, uh, disputes. Uh, so this goes back then in, in the Indian subcontinent to the British colonial government legislating uh, in 1860 what they called offense relating to religion. Uh, and uh, that uh, uh, it was Lord Macaulay, of course, in 1860, who drafted this, these, these set of uh, statues, uh, again, c- calling offense relating to religion. And the, the, the idea was that the, uh, India is a sort of multi-religious place, and it's best to uh, manage these conflicts by... Um, uh, 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 you know, creating these offenses, for example, uh, the, uh, to say that you cannot uh, destroy or damage or defile any place of worship or any object held to be uh, sacred by, by any class or person. Uh, um, so, the, but the problem, and here I'll give you a specific example to illustrate this, is that it, in this instance now, the state is very much implicated, the colonial state is very much implicated in defining what is and is not a religious object, for example. So um, one of the things, for example, was that they argued that the religious objects does not include animate animated objects or so that killing a cow by a Muslim within sight of public road could not be prosecuted. Uh, This, of course, proved to be highly problematic. uh, And uh, when in 1888, the court declared that cows were not sacred objects, the cow protection society sprung up in most parts of India. And as you know, it's uh, until this day, one of the most highly charged symbol of Hindu nationalism. So so, um, there is then that uh, offense against religion as one of the, the, the things to think about and how that sort of judicializes religious differences. The other thing, of course, in that 80 years that I was trying to illustrate, especially in terms of uh, the before uh, partition 1947, uh, the second element is the emergence of Hindu and Muslim as key national identities in the subcontinent uh, and what kind of politics that creates, what kind of a public sphere does it make uh, possible. Um, and so here then it's not only that this uh, the, that the public sphere now becomes uh, a place where your sort of religious identities are uh, c- kind of uh, contested, uh, but also that it p- provides uh, a, a, a set of intense competition uh, among Muslims uh, uh, where different Muslims are jostling with each other to claim a larger uh, part of that public sphere. And then the last thing I try to do in that uh, chapter is to sort of then show the conundrum that the post-colonial Pakistani state uh, faced as it tried to be first Muslim nation state, uh, but at this, uh, a, a, and what does that mean? And at the same time, claiming to be a state that will follow uh, sort of democratic principles of uh, treating religious minorities as equal citizens. So let me just then get you a couple of uh, specific examples of what, the, what I mean by this uh, sort of, uh, so uh, the, 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 uh, uh, Ilmuddin's sort of uh, killing the publisher became a highly emotional, highly charged 
kind of a, a incident, uh, and uh, it brought uh, to the streets uh, many uh, uh, uh Muslim leaders and uh, uh, th- but the, the 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 leadership that it brought to the streets, especially so the kind of Islamic public sphere that it uh, helped uh, uh, sort of shape was different from uh, uh, you know the the way that public sphere is understood in the the sort of the, the uh, Western. Um, uh, discourse. So here, I think that perhaps the most uh, uh, helpful uh, expression of that has been given by the scholarship of Professor Freetag, who has sort of talked about how the public arenas in South Asia were really constituted as places that were alternative world uh, uh, to what the colonial uh, uh, government had created in terms of legitimacy. And and so uh, the the on the one hand, you have these uh, colonially constructed legislative assemblies, etc., cetera, uh, where you had, quote-unquote, respectable leaders of the Muslims, such as uh, uh, Jinnah, for example, uh, debating this whole issue uh, in 1927-28 regarding this uh, insult to religious feelings. But then it's uh, the, the uh, street, the street politics, uh, was really something that was uh, giving opportunities to uh, sort of newer leaders. Uh, so uh, the, I'll just give you an example of in 1913, for example, one of the lieutenant general uh, sort of says uh, about one of these uh, kind of protests that was really led by an insignificant Malvi, uh, insignificant uh, cleric, but that uh, what this shows is he worried that the future would hold the, more of these kinds of protests where energetic, what he called this, I'm quoting directly, energetic, clever, ambitious, sometimes personally embittered men whose aim is to displace the natural leaders of the Mohammedan community uh, and to become, for a time, the leaders themselves will happen. So it's uh, so for me, then, the the whole story of Ilmuddin sort of shows, yes, indeed, the public sphere does become an arena that brings on a kind of a, a different kind of leadership. Uh, it is, uh, you know, uh, part of it is, is the call it religious, the various Diobandi, and Brailevis and Ali Hadith, etc. And part of it is, is this, you know, restless young men who are looking for sort of some kind of greater engagement with the public life, and it makes that possible. Okay, so so uh, the, the 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 story of Ilmuddin and Mumtaz Qadri, I think, sort of illustrates then uh, the the political dynamics uh, uh, in uh, Pakistan that sort of creates this this uh, public sphere, uh, which is, uh, let's say, uh, kind of, um, um, okay, so uh, <laughs> uh, that, that, that allows for, for, for ideas and actors to, to sort of become uh, relevant that our, our other institutions are not. So the parliament, etc., uh, some of the regular political parties are uh, not allowing uh, these new newer actors to come into play. And that's what, what uh, uh, so whether it's, uh, you know, uh, people in, in contemporary politics, uh, for example, in Pakistan, people like Khadam Hussain Rizvi, uh, these are, you know, ambitious leaders who don't find a space in the usual political arena. And this uh, sort of uh, politics around blasphemy allows them that political space. Um, so one last thing that I wanted to kind of illustrate with this story of, uh, of uh, uh, Ilmuddin on the one hand and uh, Qadri on the other hand was really the conundrum that Pakistani uh, state f- uh, faced as being the first Muslim state uh, uh so here, basically, uh, taking off from uh, Professor Viswanathan's, uh, Horin Viswanathan's uh, uh, 
scholarship about uh, blasphemy and heresy. So one of the things that she does is that she draws our attention uh, to sort of this shifting relationship between blasphemy and heresy, or what she terms the distinction between manner and matter. So uh, uh, she argues that if blasphemers are defined as those who commit verbal offense in shocking, vile, and crude languages, heresy is the site of competing interest and doctrine. And so uh, the Ilmuddin story in some ways is very much about uh, sort of blasphemy, that the publisher had had been engaged in blasphemy against the prophet's honor. Uh, but in after 1947, the thing that uh, complicates blasphemy politics is this whole question of heresy. And here it's about uh, what constitutes a, a, a true Islam or who is a Muslim. So within a few years of the creation of uh, Pakistan, then the question of Ahmadis uh, arose, uh, arises. And the question of Ahmadis is simply about whether or not Ahmadis accept uh, the finality of uh, 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 prophethood as far as Prophet Muhammad is concerned. Um, so this, I think, f- provides a very sort of, it becomes very tricky then for Pakistani state to both uh, kind of construct a modern Islam, uh, Muslim identity and also be attuned to the rights of the min- minorities. So unlike the British state that could take its Christian heritage for granted um, uh, while burnishing its cred- uh, credentials as a liberal constitutional uh, polity, um, uh, the Pakistani state first had to construct an identity as the first Muslim nation state. Uh, and then also at the same time, uh, think about how to create uh, sort of equal uh, rights for all its uh, uh, citizens, including religious minorities. So what I argue is that this this whole Ahmadi question uh, very quickly in the early 50s in Pakistan became this explosive measure, uh, sort of a collision between blasphemy and heresy. Uh, and as a result, uh, what you sort of see is uh, the, 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 the Pakistani state initially sort of uh, seeing this as only kind of intolerance of these various, uh, you know, uh, Malavis or, or religious clerics. And so there was a commission uh, formulated in Pakistan called Munir Kayani Commission that wanted to look at what had led to all these rioting around the Amity question. And, and, uh, Unfortunately, one of the things that they came up with in their their commission report was to sort of say, look, all these religious clerics, they cannot agree on who is a Muslim. So in a sense, they were sort of saying that, you know, the the, the ulama are just too wedded to their own particular differences, and they really are not quite capable of performing any kind of a role for for, in a modern polity. They are, uh, you know... um, uh, too backward, etc. And but and, but one of the things that the commission does recommend is that maybe this we should come up with a definition of who's a Muslim. And I argue that that created a whole can of worms, and it really uh, led to a lot of the difficulties that we saw uh, later on, because uh, you know to sort of. Uh, it was sort of asking for trouble uh, to sort of say that there should be a legally defined definition of uh, who is a Muslim. And we can see that later on playing into 70s, into sort of declaring uh, Ahmadis and non-Muslims. So all of these, as you can see, very complex strands, I try to sort of knit them into uh, to, to, uh, in a narrative that explains to us why is it that blasphemy uh, politics became such a, uh, conundrum, such a hard nut to crack in Pakistan. Uh, this serves as a good uh, segue into the next question, Farhat. Uh, we've already begun to uh, touch on this, but you know, one of the big strengths of this book is that you really go into some great detail into some key moments and developments that uh, go into the formations of blasphemy laws in Pakistan. So uh, building on what you were just talking about in relation to the uh, question of the Ahmadiyya community, uh, could you uh, maybe uh, speak to some more uh, pivotal moments and developments and paradoxes uh, that have shaped the, the genealogy of uh, blasphemy laws uh, in uh, Pakistan? Sure, absolutely. 
So uh, one of the things that many others have noted is the fact that uh, the blasphemy statues, as they were put together in terms of offense against religion, had been on the books for a long time in uh, both India and Pakistan. Um, They continued uh, even after partition. Uh, But it was really, they did not create much controversy or not too many cases came out uh, of those uh, statues. Uh, so the question then becomes, why is it that it's really more in the 19, late 80s and really 1990s onward, the last 25, 30 years, that these statues had become, uh, I think, a, a sort of a factory for generating uh, um, sort of religious conflict and, and uh, uh, you know, creating all the, the uh, u- trouble that we usually as- associate with blasphemy statues. So why is it that they become so controversial in the 1990s and they were not so uh, earlier? So to answer that question, first of all, we have to see how blasphemy statues were expanded uh, in early 80s. Uh, and uh, that takes us to uh, the story of, I think, uh, for me, again, a general phenomena, but I focus on the case of Pakistan, how authoritarian governments have uh, used Islam for uh, purpose of legitimizing their their rule. So as you know, Ziaul Haq, who was a military dictator who had uh, hung the first uh, popularly elected prime minister of Pakistan, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, and taken over uh, uh, had uh, then engaged in what was known as Islamicization and had passed a variety of uh, statutes and executive orders to implement uh, Islam, as he uh, explained it. So during that time then, uh, uh, we see... Uh, blasphemy statues being expanded. So the very first expansion happened in 1980. Uh, It was uh, called 298A uh, of Pakistan Penal Code. And I think it's important for me to just read you that uh, the few sentences of that law. So it says, whoever by words, either spoken or written, or by visible representations, or by any imputation, innuendo, or insinuation, insinuation directly or indirectly defiles the sacred name of any wife or members of the family of the holy prophet peace be upon him or any of the righteous uh, or companions sahaba of the holy prophet peace be upon him shall be punished with imprisonment of either description for a term which may extend to three years or with fine or with both okay so anyone who is uh, sort of uh, uh, aware of the the, the Shia Sunni uh, sort of sectarian landscape of South Asia would see that this is really is something that is targeted against the the Shia, and it can create lots of uh, issues in terms of uh, again becoming a, uh, a a statue that can generate hundreds, if not thousands of cases uh, where uh, Shia might be accused of uh, violating this code because uh, in their uh, commemorations, they say things that will be seen as uh, insulting uh, Prophet's family. Uh, so the question is, why this change uh, at this point? And so what I try to, to kind of show in my um, a book is that Ziaul uh, Haq uh, had implemented the Zakat and Ush ordinance, uh, which uh, sort of said that the, from then on, uh, Muslims will pay Zakat to the state. That was opposed by the Shia because they argued that they they, they uh, follow a different uh, the Jafriya school of jurisprudence and therefore they will not uh, follow the Hanafi, which is the, the main uh, jurisprudential uh, school to be followed by the Sunni in Pakistan. Uh, and that created tremendous controversy. And uh, I show how, you know, the, the, the uh, Pakistani government sort of solicited opinion from the Iranian government. They got a lot of pressure from the Saudi government to actually implement this, um, uh, you know, so Pakistani then politics became highly sectarian during after this this whole uh, zakat and ush ordinance controversy, and it then uh, spawned multiple groups, uh, Shia Sunni groups that that 
we might call extremists that were then uh, kind of became militarized and started to use the public arena uh, for that sectarian politics. And so this particular statute, the extension of this uh, 295A, then you can see is very much used as a weapon by one particular uh, sect against another, so to speak. Um, So the other just... uh, um, Additions into the blasphemy statutes then, uh, then in 1982, uh, the ordinance was modified once again. And this time, uh, the British already had this, that if you injure or defy place of worship uh, with intent to insult a religion, uh, that, that that will be considered an offense. But in this instance, the, what was added was defiling the Quran, uh, that if you defile the Quran, uh, then, then uh, uh, you will be punished under the statute. Here again, unfortunately, uh, what we see uh, is what uh, Assad Ahmed has called moral panic uh, because there were series of stories in the newspaper reporting instances of defilement of Quran. Uh, but really, as you, you can see that, that, that uh, you know, the Quranic text is now widely available in a lot of newspapers, books, etc. And so what happened a lot of time is that some pieces of it might be, might go into uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, rubbish or, or or become part of sewage or something, and and because the the vast majority of the cleaners and uh, sewage workers are illiterate Christians in Pakistan, uh, sometime unknowingly they might dispose of uh, paper that had the Quranic verses on it without necessarily knowing what it is that they're doing. But that then became yet another. A place where many of the Christians were accused of blasphemy because they were supposedly defiling the Quran, and it became a you know source of tremendous um, uh, sort of pro- problem around blasphemy statue. Uh, the third addition uh, was in 1984, and that was to prohibit Ahmadis from posing as Muslims, which creates a whole lot of problem that you know I don't unfortunately have time to go into. And then the last addition was in 1986. It was 295C. Uh, which prohibited use of derogatory marks, remarks against the prophet. So it was called, known as a, a statue for the protection of honor of prophet Namuse Muhammad. Um, and this is the one that then generated a lot of other uh, cases, uh, some of the most famous one being the assassination of the governor, uh, uh, Tasir, uh, in 2011. Now, another big uh, strength of this uh, book, Farhat, is that you also bring into view uh, many actors that we might previously have not known about, and you show their critical importance to the development of blasphemy in Pakistan. And one such figure who really intrigued me uh, in one of the middle chapters of the book is uh, this figure called Muhammad Ismail Qureshi. Could you uh, uh, introduce this figure to our listeners and describe a bit his important role in the development of blasphemy discourse in Pakistan, and how does he uh, really embody some of the tensions and aspirations of uh, blasphemy politics in uh, Pakistan? Yes, absolutely. I think Mohammad Ismail Qureshi is really a great illustration of uh, <coughs> these various strands uh, that come together to sort of uh, shape our thinking about, uh, <coughs> excuse me, let me start that over again. Okay, so Mohammed Ismail Qureshi, he's, he is one of the pivotal figures uh, in uh, the movement that is known as Khatami Nabuwat, or, or the movement that declares Muhammad as the final prophet, and that's a movement that's geared against the Ahmadis. And the second is uh, called Namuse Risalat movement, and that's uh, to protect the honor of the prophet, uh, very much related then to the blasphemy statues. So he's an attorney um, uh, trained in uh, sort of modern laws. He's not an alim. Uh, he's not a scholar of Islamic laws. But he's been a very pivotal figure in blasphemy statutes because he has argued in uh, front of the Supreme Court's uh, Shariat appellate bench in favor of declaring Ahmadis as non-Muslims, for example. He's also uh, been one of the pivotal figures that have argued that the only uh, punishment for blasphemy uh, insulting the prophet is death penalty and has successfully argued that, by the way, in front of uh, the Pakistani Supreme Court. So, you know, uh, uh, who is this figure and why is why does he have such a, a 
such an influence uh, on on uh, this issue. Um, I think that that when you uh, read his book, which I sort of discussed in my uh, my book, the, it's called Namuse Risalat or Kanune Tohine Risalat, uh, the, the, the prophets and honor and the laws around uh, insulting the prophet. Uh, what I find is that he is really a good example of how you could take uh, from the Islamic past, which was so much more pluralistic and and sort of uh, you know um, uh, tolerant of differences, etc., how you can take a few import from that past, a few concepts, and then uh, sort of mix them into the Western legal tradition and come up with a very very. Uh, rigid framework. This is what, uh, which then sort of says that, you know, the, the statues are God's laws. Uh, so, so he's a good example of how that happens, a recipe of how that happens. So for example, he sort of says, okay, uh, in, in, among the Muslims, there had been all this uh, uh, debate between the four different uh, schools of laws um, uh, and, and uh, throughout Muslim history about uh, what constitutes uh, blasphemy. And so since there is no such thing as blasphemy as such in the Islamic jurisprudence, there are several things that can be similar to what we understand as blasphemy. So one of the things, for example, is called irtad, where if Muslims uh, can potentially say such insulting things about the Prophet that they can no longer claim to be Muslim. So that's like, you know, one way uh, you can leave the faith or become an apostate. Uh, uh, But then uh, there is all this debate about, okay, then uh, uh, if that's the case, then then what's the penalty for that? Should the penalty of that be death or should we just leave it to the afterlife and for God to decide how? this person should be punished. There's a lot of debate about uh, uh, what about women. Uh, there is some, uh, I think, among the Hanafi disagreement that women should not be put to death uh, in the, this uh, um, uh, for punishment for, for uh, uh, insulting the prophet. Anyway, so there's a lot of this debate. So he basically goes through all of them and essentially comes up with this idea that, that really at the end of it, there is no debate, that it is all, there is tremendous consensus uh, that all of these uh, acts should uh, be punished with death penalty. So this whole idea of of creating a very rigid framework, but he does that by really importing then some of the Western uh, concepts. So sort of he makes this uh, uh, argument, for example, that uh, uh, punishing, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Insulting the prophet is really like becoming a rebel against the state. And since uh, uh, Islam is an important part of Pakistani state, uh, if you are uh, insulting the prophet, you are really rebelling against the state and all countries uh, uh, punish uh, uh, rebels against the state through death penalty. So you can see how he is sort of this, you know, kind of mixing of matching of different traditions to just come up with a very rigid framework. Now, one of the things that you argue throughout uh, this book, uh, which I think is a central theme, uh, is this very poignant argument where you uh, say that uh, the narrative of blasphemy in Pakistan, um, and I'm sort of paraphrasing your argument here, uh, shows how Islam has been secularized and the state sacralized in the country, which I thought was a very interesting formulation. Could you explain a bit this argument for our listeners? Yes. So I think first I would just say that, you know, as both a scholar who tried to kind of understand political Islam, but also uh, as a Pakistani-American who goes to Pakistan all the times and, you know, This is a joke, but it's true. A lot of my best friends are Muslims. I mean, I I sort of understand uh, kind of the practice of it, daily uh, practice of Islam. Um, And so for me, it's this this tremendous gap sometime um, between the fact that that, uh, for many of the Muslims, you know, religion is very important and it is uh, sort of guides their daily life and they try to be a good person because they want to be a good Muslim. But then I look at the 
political framework, particularly in Pakistan. And I see how often Islamic ideas are used in a way to create outcomes that really uh, sort of uh, um, uh, are, are even morally uh, um, morally apprehensible. They are like you know the outcomes like uh, that that uh, really uh, question our moral conscience. So so I'm. Part of my writing this book was trying to sort of come to terms with what is going on with that gap. Why is there is this gap? And so for me, this for the 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 answer has to do first with the fact that uh, for the uh, Muslims in modernity, state has become the key focus that uh, kind of. Uh, defines uh, how to live a good Muslim life, which I find uh, problematic. So this focus on the state as the primary expression of Islam, but at, as I said earlier, it's uh, at the same time there is a deep suspicion of the motivation of political elites and anxiety over the political use of Islam among Muslims. So this paradoxical uh, uh, sort of situation then uh, creates these these kind of um, um, Ironies, I would say. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, if you ask Muslims, and I've asked a lot of my Pakistani friends, they would say, absolutely, Pakistani state should, uh, uh, as an Islamic state, implement the Zakat ordinance. Uh, but on the other hand, I see many of those people finding all kinds of ways to get out of paying Zakat. To the to the state, uh, and so my uh, kind of uh, challenge was to understand why that happens. So one of the things that again my reading about uh, you know um, uh, Islamic studies, particularly, sort of illustrated to me is that in the implement- implementation of Islamic laws in pre-modern Sharia were based on this uh, idea of the activation of person's conscious, Zamir, uh, to tell the truth. So uh, the idea was even if you gain advantage in this world by lying, uh, you would have to account for that lying hereafter. So the, the Islamic way of life or Sharia was not simply about Islamic way and laws. It was also understood to be ethical, legal, social framework that contained techniques to produce moral sensibility uh, and to adjudicate social conflicts. It worked. It was a workable framework. Um, and so this is what we lose in uh, modern times, uh, because uh, uh, the way that Islamic uh, laws are, are implemented uh, in um, contemporary Muslim societies sort of breaks the the the, the, the ethical uh, foundation of of these laws. So yes, uh, so you know, if you took, for example, uh, uh, the the whole notion of hadood laws, right? Um, <laughs> So uh, in the 1980s uh, in Pakistan, Hadood laws become infamous for for uh, violating uh, women's rights. Uh, so you know, one of the story that was uh, told so many different times was this idea of a you know uh, a poor blind woman, Safia Bibi, who was uh, raped by one of uh, the the uh, bosses of hers where she worked. Uh, she became pregnant, and then she was the one who was uh, accused uh, of uh, engaging in. Uh, Zina or non-marital sex and was uh, imprisoned. So again, that story really, uh, you know, uh, sort of challenges our conscience about uh, the justness of uh, Islamic laws. But my uh, kind of uh, readings of uh, the the Hadood ordinance, uh, or not, or Hadood as a, a set of Islamic punishment, uh, kind of. Uh, showed me that, in fact, these were some of the most difficult laws to implement, uh, that there was greatest benefit given to the accused, uh, that there was the idea that, you know, uh, the, 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 these are in, indeed crimes against God, um, uh, and so therefore they should be punished. This is hard, but uh, it's be- better to let 
some of the people who actually might be guilty free because you want to make sure that they have all the the, the guarantees. Uh, and so uh, because there's always, God can always punish them in hereafter. So this, this idea of, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of really careful implementation. That's why we see that for the longest stretch of Islamic history, we did not have uh, have uh, uh, people who were uh, accused of adultery being stoned, etc. So that that for me as a secular Muslim, um, should I say, was a dis- the, was a discovery. Uh, the, it was uh, something a revelation. For me. And so, given all of that, what I say that my argument is that the fact that authoritarian countries um, or authoritarian leaders like uh, Ziaul Haq in Pakistan or or Numeri in Sudan implemented these Hadood laws as a way to really both enhance their legitimacy and also to somewhat create a sort of terror among their opponents sort of shows the the kind of, I guess, this, this secularization of uh, these Islamic laws. That's part of what I mean by that. Terrific. Now, towards the end of your uh, book, Farhat, you also bring in a comparative angle to this whole study of blasphemy in Pakistan. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about how uh, some of the prevailing discourses and laws on blasphemy in Pakistan compare to what we find in other uh, Muslim-majority countries. Maybe you can pick a couple uh, to, to give this comparative angle that you bring towards the end of the book. Okay, let me very quickly actually give you, uh, there were four countries that I looked at uh, uh, as a comparison. So first, uh, let's look at Turkey, because I think Turkey is a very interesting example uh, for us in in the Muslim world. Uh, So in Turkey, uh, there is really no, uh, uh, in in terms of blasphemy laws, uh, no laws that kind of, let me start that over again. I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm having such a trouble. Okay, let me start that over again. Okay. So in Turkey, what we see is that uh, the decades of sort of very assertive state control over religion, and also, as you know, uh, there was a very strong secularist project in Tur- Turkey, uh, uh, meant that there really are no blasphemy or apostasy statutes that Turkey has. It does have an Article 216 in their penal code, which is... Uh, um, uh, uh, sort of not, uh, it's against uh, insulting people's religion. So any person openly disrespectful to the religious belief of a group is punishment with impri- imprisonment of six months or so, uh, or, or one year. So it's really a more sort of a liberal expression of making sure that you're not engaging in, uh, you know, uh, insult of other people's religious feeling. Um, so uh, I think Turkey, uh, I would say this in a very uh, sort of a careful way, but maybe one kind of a model for for um, uh, sort of thinking about uh, contemporary Muslim politics, because uh, in many ways uh, they they have now sort of come to a term where uh, the Sharia in Turkey is not equated with specific Islamic laws. Uh, instead, it is viewed more as a system of uh, kind of moral. Uh, actions or ethical guidelines. So that's one model. Then we, in Egypt, Egypt is a very, again, a very interesting case because there are several different uh, issues that touch on this whole uh, idea of blasphemy. So there is this idea of what uh, is the status of Baha'i in in Egypt. There's also uh, issues around Coptic Christians, for example, uh, because uh, there is no divorce allowed uh, in uh, Coptic Christianity. So there have been instances where Coptic uh, men have converted to Islam as a way to sort of get divorced, but then they want to go back to their fold of, you know, uh, reconvert back to Christianity. And that created all kinds of issues around uh, uh, irtad or leaving Islam. Can you be allowed to leave Islam? Uh, And uh, there's also a very famous case in in, uh, Egypt of Abu Zayyad, who was really an Islamic reformer, and his writing was used as a basis by some of his to say that he's actually left the fold of Islam. So there are many different interesting uh, 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 cases in uh, Egypt. I think 
uh, I would recommend to your listener uh, Sabah Mahmoud's uh, book, Religious Differences in a Secular Age, uh, where she does a marvelous job of examining many of these issues in Egypt. Um, then just let me get to Indonesia very quickly, because Indonesia is another interesting exa- uh, case. First of all, the largest Muslim country in the world, but also highly pluralistic. So, you know, there are 87% of the the, uh, Indonesians are Muslims, but then they have, uh, you know, Hindus, Christians, Buddhists, etc., and the, the way the modern Indonesian state has managed religious differences uh, is what Jeremy Menchkin has described as productive intolerance. Uh, so the idea is that uh, a belief in one God is an important part of being an Indonesian, Indonesian national identity. Uh, so uh, uh, that's that means that that the six religions that are, are officially recognized in uh, uh, Indonesia ought all to be uh, treated equally. So that's what uh, sort of uh, is uh, uh, one uh, sort of uh, recognition of religious pluralism. But what is interesting in in um, um, Indonesia is this uh, fear of uh, heresy or heterodoxy. That's where uh, there is uh, lots of, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of controversy that we see. Uh, and, and uh, for example, uh, in 2005, uh, the Council of Indonesian Ulama uh, announced that uh, the biggest problem facing Indonesia is heresy. And as a result, then, there have been lots of uh, cases brought against the Ahmadis. And interestingly, even the Shia have been sort of uh, enfolded into this idea of heresy that that really Shiism cannot be allowed as a practice in Indonesia because they're heretical. So there's all those sort of uh, issues that are uh, at play in Indonesia. Uh, very quickly, I think Tunisia is maybe another model of a kind because in Tunisia, uh, 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 as you know, it's one of the bright spots coming out of the uh, uh, Arab uh, Spring, the variety of uh, protests, etc., uh, that ha- happened uh, uh, in that in Indonesia. Sorry, uh, Tunisia is the only country that has uh, sort of emerged out of Arab Spring and have continued. To, to keep its uh, democratic uh, form. And here I think the, 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 it just one interesting thing to outline is that uh, the Enhada the party, uh, which is the Islamist party that was in, in, uh, came to power out of elections uh, and wrote the first uh, uh, Indonesian, sorry, I'm sorry, uh, Tunisian uh, Constitution uh, was uh, sort of uh, said. It says the following. I just wanna that the that uh, it guarantees uh, the constitution guarantees freedom of conscience and belief, free exercise of religious practices, and neutrality of mosques and places of worship from all partisan instrumentalization. So that's sort of an interesting uh, kind of a, uh, expression where they are trying to create a balance between, on the one hand, kind of uh, uh, freedom of expression, but on the other hand, also trying to kind of recognize uh, that uh, Islam is an important part of Tunisia, uh, Tunisian identity. Uh, and, and so there is that case. As we're coming to the uh, end of our time, uh, Farad, could you uh, share with our listeners a bit about what you might be uh, thinking about as the next uh, project that you will be working on? Sure. So um, my next project, uh, I'm really interested in uh, thinking about uh, gender in contemporary uh, Muslim countries and particularly in Pakistan. Um, again, as a Muslim woman, uh, I find that uh, there is uh, just so much uh, confusion and uh, uh, 
big political projects around the role of uh, Muslim women in contemporary politics. And and so what I want to do is, again, as I try to do in this book, I want to look at very specific set of cases and, and, and then see how that illustrates to us this larger dynamic of what's going on with Muslim women's role in uh, uh, contemporary Muslim politics. So what I'm going to do is uh, uh, study the, uh, a law that was made by the Punjab Assembly in 2015 uh, called Violence Against Women, uh, and then they created a center that is supposed to help implement that. So I'm going to sort of do a participant observation kind of study there, uh, hoping to do that next year, and then see what that illustrates to me in terms of this whole notion of uh, uh, Muslim women and uh, their Sharia and the State in Pakistan, Blasphemy Politics by Professor Farah published by Rutledge Press in 2019. Uh, thank you so much, Farad, for such a rich and engaging book. Uh, really looking forward to the conversations that it will spark. And thank you so much for the generosity of your time today in speaking to us on the New Books Network. Thank you very much. Thank you, Shirali, for giving me the opportunity. Take care. So this was my conversation with Professor Farah Thak about her wonderful new book on blasphemy politics in Pakistan. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and I hope you will join us next week for another new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.